Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long. For just $25. $25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert to buy now. <clears throat> AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news, sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. Dealing with pests can be a pain, but relax. Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. If your home or business has pests, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. From UFOs to psychic powers and government conspiracies, history is riddled with unexplained events. You can turn back now or learn the stuff they don't want you to know. A production of iHeartRadio. Hello, welcome back to the show. My name is Matt. My name is Noel. They call me Ben. We're joined, as always, with our super producer, Paul Mission Control Deck, and most importantly, you are you, you are here, and that makes this the stuff they don't want you to know. This is the second part of a two-part series. We are joined again with award-winning investigative journalist, screenwriter, and author Peter Lance to continue our exploration of the Doris Duke case. Now, folks, in our previous episode, we learned the facts about the murder of Eduardo Torella, as well as the, I think it's fair to say at this point, blatant continuing cover-up surrounding these events, and we ended on a cliffhanger. So we're not going to leave everybody hanging any any longer, right? Uh, Peter, thank you so much for returning with us today to talk about the fallout, the aftermath, the present-day revelations about the Doris Duke case. Uh, We have a lot of stuff we didn't get to in part one. uh, So we're immensely fortunate to have you back here with us for part two. 
Yeah, great. Well, in order to kind of set the stage, I would like to do a quick recitation of the facts that the essential evidence that I uncovered in my Vanity Fair story, first published in June of 20, and then this book that I wrote, Homicide at Rough Point, that led a, a new, unknown, living witness of the actual murder to come forward and for the Newport police to reopen the case. What was learned in the course of my initial investigation through the first officer on the scene, Edward Angel, as told, uh, he told me uh, that Sergeant Fred Newton, who was the chief accident investigator, had determined within minutes of Eduardo Torella's death what happened. And Eduardo Torella was this wonderful Renaissance man and war hero who'd been working for Doris Duke for seven years as her principal designer and art curator. They were leaving her estate, Rough Point, in Newport, Rhode Island, on Millionaire's Row, Bellevue Avenue, uh, on the late afternoon around five o'clock of uh, the 7th of October, 1966, to look at and pick up a reliquary, which is a work of art that Eduardo had appraised earlier in the day. And he finally gave her the imprimatur, let's go out and and get it. Uh, he had just told her moments earlier that he was leaving her employ after seven years. She was notoriously jealous and vindictive. She had a hair temper. She had stabbed her common-law husband with a butcher knife two years earlier, 150 stitches, got away with that. And so as they're leaving the estate, Eduardo's driving this 66 Dodge Polaro wagon, two-ton station wagon, and uh, he gets out to open these massive iron gates, 12 feet tall by seven feet wide. They're 15 feet away. And as he's at the gates trying to just to start to open them, she slides behind the wheel, affirmative act one. She then releases the parking brake by hand. She then puts the car, moves the gear shift from park to drive affirmatively, slams down on the accelerator, causing tire width gouge marks of two, two inches in the gravel. And then just roars forward at him. He then, to save his life, does a kind of a lizard brain reaction and he jumps up on the hood, which is a thing that people do to save their lives if they can't go left or right. And he's staring at her. He broke his hip in the, in the course of that, but he's staring at her as she bursts through the gates and then affirmative act five, she taps the brakes, deaccelerates and, you know, skids to a stop. He rolls off. He's now in front of her calling out in pain, Doris. And then she decides to commit. She roars over him, crushing him under the vehicle and dragging him across the street, 80 feet onto a curb, knocks down 20 feet of post and rail fence and hits a tree. And he is, he's just dead, instantly dead. Mm -hmm. And so what I just described uh, was heard by the witness who came forward last summer to me. And what happened was, after my book came out, I was the uh, uh, considered author in residence at the Brenton Hotel in Newport, Rhode Island. All of this is on my website, peterlance.com. And I'm there on July 3rd, a rainy afternoon, and this gentleman comes up to me. He says, I was, I was there. I was, I was like her paper boy for a rough point. I said, are you kidding me? How old were you? And, you know, I vetted him heavily that night, and then I took him back the next day. And he said, I was coming out of Ledge Road, which is just kind of uh, to the east of, uh, uh, the west of Rough Point. It's about 600 feet away, 600 yards away, actually. And I could hear in the distance, it was very quiet in those days. There was no co competitive traffic. I heard a man and a woman arguing. And I had established earlier that they were arguing inside just after Eduardo told Doris he was leaving her. And so 
She didn't want him to go, and, and but they're shouting at each other in the house, and now apparently they took it outside. So as he gets, he's on his bike, he's about to deliver the paper to Rough Point, and there are two gates at Rough Point. There's a main gate in the front, and then there's a little service gate off to the side. And when you go to PeterLance.com and look at the Vanity Fair piece I filed in August, which has this detail, I did a, a, a video of Bob that Vanity Fair edited. It's like five minutes long. You can get the entire sense of what I'm about to tell tell you and what he told me. So he's pedaling on his 10-speed bike, you know, frantically. And as he gets closer, he keeps hearing all of the events I just described. He hears the initial uh, uh, crash, uh, you know, as, as, as or the man crying out as, as, as he goes up on the hood. He hears the first crash of the gates opening. He then hears a deacceleration. He hears the skid. He hears the man crying out. And then he hears the man go as he's getting really close. No! And then she just drags over Eduardo and kills him. All the fatal injuries, as I later determined uh, from autopsy reports that had been missing, were to his upper body, and all of the damage was to the lower gates. She did not crush him against the gates, which is the cover story the police used. So Bob tells mm-hmm. me this, and I said, well, why are you telling me this now? He said, because I read your book, and I, I, I knew about your Vanity Fair thing. I didn't even bother reading it, but people told me about it, and I read your book finally, and I just thought about coming forward for all night and then for days. And everybody told me, don't bother, Bob. You know, like, let it lie. Let it rest. You really don't need this in your life. He's a grandfather. He has multiple grandchildren. He's retired, a steam fitter, wonderful guy. And he basically, when I took him up the next day, he took me through every little angle of it. And this is the most astonishing thing that he told me. He said, after he literally made it to the service gate and dropped dutifully dropped the paper in a slot, he turned, and it was literally seconds after the second fatal crash, okay, the second crash across the street. And he whip pans over, and he looks down the street, and he sees this station wagon uh, and with what he thought was a fire coming up. It was steam. And then he sees a woman get out of the car, a tall woman. Now, he'd never met Doris Duke. He knew he delivered to Rough Point. He knew that there was a rich lady called Doris Duke. She was six foot two. And he sees her get out, walk one, two, three, four, five steps, deliberately turn, and she starts staring underneath the vehicle, like looking at it as if searching for proof of life. Not in shock, not, oh my God, what did I do? What did I say? You know, my Eduardo. No, she's like steely-eyed and cold-blooded, like, you know, looking down. And so Bob comes up behind her on his 10-speed, and she doesn't see him because her back is to him. Finally, as he finishes pedaling, the the gears start to click, 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 and she turns, and he says, ma'am, can I help you? And he was always taught by his father the code. You always help people. If it's a woman, you do even more to help the person. You know, uh, he noticed that she had no injuries on her. She was not in any kind of shock at all. But he said, ma'am, do you want me to go up to the house? And three times in a row, first he said, do you want me to get help? Then he said, do you want me to go to the house? And then he said, do you want me to call the cops? Each time she pointed her finger at him and says, you get the hell out of here. Literally, with more velocity to her voice each time. And he's a 13-year-old kid. And he's like, whoa. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, he's trying to see under the car because he remembered hearing a man's voice. And there's no man. And she's crab walking back and forth in front of the vehicle as if to keep him from seeing. And finally, she just gets him out of there. And as he's pedaling away, he thinks to himself, and all of this he tells me the next day as we go up there, where was the guy? Where was the guy whose voice I heard? Next day, he then sees the Newport Daily News and 
I'll stop talking. You can, we can pick it up from, from there just so you guys can get a word in edgewise. I think we're all wrapped. <laughs> well, that's, that's the whole thing here, Peter. When, when I, I watched that video that you're talking about, it's on the Vanity Fair piece that's edited together. It's uh, pretty horrifying to, to kind of live back, live through that again with Bob as he's taking you through that. And he gets to a point in there where he discusses why he didn't immediately come forward with it. Why, like, after, you know, you're a kid, you're 13 years old, you probably go home, you tell your parents, you're like, man, this crazy thing happened. Why didn't he end up, you know, going and speaking with the police or with reporters? Or why wasn't that a part of the story initially? Exactly. So what what he told me was, uh, and it was quite believable, and if you go to PeterLance.com and you look at the Vanity Fair, the second story, you'll see a family photo is in the cover of the the first page. And his father was like six foot four, big guy, former prize fighter, tough guy. There were nine children. Bob, uh, you know, was the oldest at the time. And basically... The next, the, the night of, when he got home, he started to tell his father, and his father said, get dinner ready, kid. You know, get, you know, get the dinner ready, the potatoes and carrots. So the next day, he goes to pick up the Daily News, because during the week, the Daily News was an afternoon paper, but on Saturday, it was delivered in the morning. So he goes to pick up the papers to deliver, and he looks at the front page, and he sees, and it's, it's all on uh, PeterLance.com, he sees Doris Duke kills friend in crash. He sees this photo of the, of the underside of the wagon on the front page. And then it says, uh, she crushed him against the gates. And, but he sees the name Eduardo Torella and he goes, Oh my God, that's the guy. So as soon as he finishes his route, he rushes home. He says, Dad, Dad, this is what I was talking about. And his father grabs him by his shoulders, pulls him out onto a sun porch away from the rest of the people in the house, the family, his mother and brothers and sisters, and says, Listen to me. You tell nobody this. You don't tell your mother, your sisters, your brother, your friends, nobody. Do you hear me? And he's like, Bob is in shock because his dad was always do the right thing, dad. Okay, come forward. Never take the path of least resistance, right? He was a Boy Scout. He was an altar boy. I mean, you know, so uh, he's go, dad, but what about, you know, the police, especially the police? Do you hear me? His father never told him why. And which is clearly, in retrospect, his father should have told him. And then for months, he dogged him. Did you talk to anybody? Just no, dad, I'm telling you, I didn't tell anybody. All right. So finally, five years go by, he's ready to join the Marine Corps. And Bob, to his credit, was this, this guy's got a photographic memory. And he was stationed during the Vietnam War at Henderson Hall, which is the Marine headquarters in Washington, D.C., where he had a top-secret security clearance. So this man is, you know, he may have been a blue-collar worker in life, but he, he was, like, very high level in terms of his, you know, analytical thinking and skill. And so he then... In 1973, takes two Marine buddies that he served with to Newport, and he tells them the story beat by beat by beat. He also tells four other Newporters, including Danny Sullivan, a retired firefighter who gave him the paper route. And he tells it exactly as I just recited it, as that he told me, beat by beat. And I contacted all of those individuals, and they told me absolutely, as it was early as 1973, we heard the same story, and Bob's told it over the years to many people. So then I said to him, well, uh, what, you know, are you going to go to the cops? He said, I already did. I went to the cops yesterday. And he did. He, and, they, and he went to talk. First, he called this lieutenant named Corey Huck, a lieutenant. 
uh, who uh, asked him something that, you know, you never ask, you know, you never get judgmental with a whistleblower, in my opinion. OK, if you if you find a whistleblower that's willing to, un- you know, talk about something that happened, you don't get judgmental with them uh, because then you could spook them into like withdrawing. Right. You just want to give them as much string as possible. And so this Lieutenant Huck said to him, are you trying to unburden your soul like and Bob said, and Bob's a bulldog, so he was not pers- d- dissuaded by this. I'm not trying to unburden my soul. And he kind of said it like that. And that's how he said it to me in the Vanity Fair video. And then uh, the next day, Huck had him meet this lieutenant. Uh, uh, her name was uh, Jackie Weist, a detective, W-U-E-S-T, pronounced Weist. And she's the cold case detective for the, daily, for the Newport police. So he goes into an interrogation room, and he's there with her for two hours. And I ultimately got the audio of that, which I transcribed and part of my investigation of what, what went wrong with this new investigation. And she's very earnest in the beginning, but it's clear she has no clue what he's talking about. She never takes him up to rough points. She never looks at the choreography of where, where events happen the way I did the next day. And she's, she's blowing up Google Maps of the area with not even Ledge Road on it and ask him to make color marks on where he was. And she totally is obviously clueless as to what happened. However, he tells her, after I read Peter Lance's book, I came forward and and then he criticizes again in the first sentence or two, Lieutenant Hawk about the burden my soul thing. So that's there. And but finally, as after this came out and I pitched it to Vanity Fair, my editor, David Friend, one of the great veterans of Vanity Fair, said, oh, really? Are you sure about this, Peter? And I said, listen, I'm going to send you some video. <laughs> as soon as I sent the video, he said, you don't even have to do a pitch uh, for this. When can you have the story? You know, 5,000 words, you know. And, uh, mm-hmm. and then they took my video and they edited it into that five-minute video that you saw, which has their logo in the upper corner. I also got a drone photographer named Lowell Blackman to do some nice drone footage of Rough Point so you could get a sense of the proximity of Ledge Road, uh, which is also available on the, on the PeterLance.com. So now the piece goes into Vanity Fair August 5th. The same day, the Associated Press goes worldwide on their international wire and 5,000 media outlets cover this. Doris Duke case reopened. And new witness comes forward, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, Jackie Weist, this detective, to her credit, initially sent me a letter. I emailed her prior to the piece going because I wanted to get their comment. And she was very specific. And again, her letter is on my website, peterlands.com. And she says, we're not going to ignore this case. This case is the Duke case has now been reopened. Uh, and uh, we're going to try and find justice for Eduardo and his family. Can you help us? And I immediately told her, yes, I was then by then back in California from Newport. And I said, you just call me and we'll do it on, on online, on Zoom, whatever you want to do. I'll help you about uh, that was the that was the 5th of August on the 20th of August or the 19th. She sends me an email and I'm, I'm sending her emails back and forth. What's the latest? What can I do to help? Blah, blah, blah. And she sends me an email that says, well, my lieutenant has told me not to talk to the media, meaning I can't talk to her now, according to her lieutenant. And that's when the fix was clearly beginning to get in. Now, was it Huck who got his nose out of joint because he was upset that Bob criticized him on the Vanity Fair thing and in and, and the interview? I don't know. I don't know this Corey Huck at all. I'd never met him. I don't know much about him. But I'm going to find out more when as I'm going to do a new book that's going to explore this. But the point is, by 
She had not read my book uh, even then, even by the end of August. And, uh, you know, she read the Vanity Fair piece. She never took Bob up to this, up to the place. And then finally, on the, on the 15th of September, now 10 weeks after she commenced the investigation, Bob writes her a, a heartfelt letter. And he's got the Irish writer's gene, man. This guy is really talented. He writes her this beautiful letter saying, have I done this for naught? Have I come forward and all for no reason? I mean, I, Eduardo Torella, as I quote him in my Vanity Fair piece, he said, I thought about it all night. I thought about it for weeks. And then I thought to myself, the truth needs to come out. The people of Newport need to know. The world needs to know. This was a beautiful man taken from this earth uh, in a violent act, and it need, the truth needs to come out. So what does Jackie Weiss do when she gets that letter on September 15th, 10 weeks in? She rushes over to his house and makes an unannounced visit. When have you ever heard of a cop making an unannounced visit unless they're going to arrest somebody at their house, right? And then she says to him, as Bob calls mm-hmm. me right after, she said, she, she asked me, uh, um, at, you know, uh, how do I know you just didn't make up this whole thing? You know, after you read Peter's book. Now, originally in her letter to me, she said, we find, I find Bob credible. She found him credible. Okay. Now, 10 weeks later, she's questioning whether he made the whole thing up. She then told him, this is interesting. I got promoted to sergeant. Hmm. I'm going off on a three week vacation. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, but when I get back, I'm going to be in, in the traffic division, which is a very important job in Newport, which has very narrow streets and hordes of tourists with big trucks. So traffic is a big deal. But she said, I'm taking all the cold cases with me. So query, if you didn't even have time then, by then she still had not read my book, okay? So if you haven't had read the book, which is the essence of the, and I sent her on September 22nd, chapter and verse, it's all on my website. There's a link, peterlance.com, letter to Jackie Weiss, September 22nd, in which in red bold, I just did like paint by numbers, connect the dots on the sixth intentional acts that Doris Duke committed that could prove intent to kill homicide. And I wasn't asking the Newport police to use the word murder. I was just saying, would you be able now to declare that there is probable evidence, compelling evidence, that the death of Eduardo Torella was proximately caused by a series of intentional acts committed by Doris Duke? You don't have to use the word murder because murder didn't apply. Murder is a legal term. And since Doris was dead, she couldn't be indicted. Then no grand jury could hear this and the case could not be brought. But, you know, why not at least reach that conclusion and set the record straight in the midst of this incredible evidence? All right. We're just going to take a quick break, hear a word from our sponsor. Then we'll be right back with more from Peter Lance. Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long. For just $25. $25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position 
warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. Terminix can't help you solve the world's biggest mysteries or take on alien life. At least not the ones you're thinking of. But they can help take care of pesky invaders in your home. Like the ants in your kitchen, the roaches under your sink, and the termites in the walls. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. No matter what type of pest it is, they can Terminix it fast with personalized pest care that puts you in control. Their expertly trained technicians may not know true crime, but they know their local pest pressures. And with customized plans tailored to your specific situation, you get everything you need to not just get pests out, but keep them out for good. Between their speedy service, caring technicians, and over 95 years of experience, it's no mystery why they're trusted by homes and businesses everywhere. So if you have a pest problem, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com to book online today. And we've returned with Peter Lance. Peter, you, you hit on a couple of things that I just really want to drill down into that you've we've already kind of discussed. I just I need to hear more. Um one of the reasons, or the reason perhaps, that active investigations are not discussed by law enforcement is so that only the person who's responsible and the investigators know the specifics, right? We, this is an established thing. When I read through your original Vanity Fair article and then excerpts from your book, I have a lot of, I'm now just as a reader armed with a lot of that information from, from your investigations. And that's, that's why maybe initially it's not that I'm skeptical of Bob. It's just that I, I imagine that he could be armed with much of the information from reading the same things I did. And that's just why I want to know how you personally vetted him. And, you know, you're saying that the, the officer also vetted him and found him credible. Just what do you use? What, what instinct is it? What are, what are the things you use to vet somebody like that? Well, the reason she found him credible was, and, and again, I at least knew Rhode Island has a very viable Freedom of Information Act law called the Access to Public Records Act. And I was able to get the audio of that recording of Bob, and I've since have gotten the video of it as well, okay? Uh, and uh, she, uh, uh, but Bob 
says to her at the very end, she says, well, who can corroborate this? And he gives her the names of the two Marines, and he gives her the names of Danny Sullivan and three other Newporters that he told in the early 80s. And to her credit, within minutes of, of him leaving, his friends called him up and said, this cop is calling to see if that story you told us years ago is true. Should I talk to her? And he said, by all means, talk to her. So the fact that she was able to corroborate, and I was, I talked to all of them personally. I interviewed them. I did transcripts. I recorded the interviews and I did transcripts of the interviews so that I knew that that he just hadn't just winged this thing, that he was not just, you know, had read my book. The, the corroboration that made him credible was the fact that he told the story so much earlier. It's very similar to a lot of the cases in the Me Too era where women who were mistreated sexually, is an understatement, were told friends contemporaneously, and that goes to their credibility, right? That's part of what we do to assess the truth in individuals who come forward, particularly if it's years and decades later. So I was convinced, and these are two Marines and and Danny Sullivan, veteran firefighter, they're all like, hey, you can take what Bob says to the bank. This guy does not exaggerate. He's not prone to hyperbole. And, you know, he met, this meant a lot to him coming forward in the first place. So, uh, you know, I, that's why I was satisfied that he was on the level. And then, you know, there was the, the, his explanation, as I gave you earlier, for why he didn't come forward with his father made perfect sense. Oh, by the way, I want to add to this. So when he's, he's now 18 years old, he goes to his father, just about to join the Marine Corps. He's now a man. And he says to him, Dad, come on, tell me, why did you tell me not to come forward? And the father says, and he, in retrospect, should have told him then, and would have saved him a lot of angst over the years. He said, son, listen, if this had gone to trial, you would have been an important key witness on motive, on, on you know, uh, the, the, uh, the event itself. You would have testified. And I, didn't, I knew what Doris Duke was capable of. I didn't want you riding your bike along Ocean Drive on doing your paper route as the, as the nights were getting darker each day and have you hit from behind by a car. I didn't want to lose my son. His father was so concerned. This bruiser, the six foot five, four guy, former prize fighter and steam fitter himself, said, his, told his son, I was so worried about you that you would be killed by Doris Duke. That's why I did it, son. And so that took a big burden off of him. But it also gives you an idea of what people thought about Doris Duke and her capabilities in Newport, Rhode Island in 1966. And that's, I, I mean, that's chilling because it's undeniably a valid concern, right? Um, and this, I, I, I agree with you that that must have been, um, that must have been at least a, a, a validating experience for Bob there uh, because, you know, it answered some questions, gave him some closure about something very uncharacteristic on his father's behalf. Uh, what are we talking about specifically? You'll have to listen to part one. Folks, but, uh, but while while we're cogitating on that, I'd like to ask about a related point here. So, in part one, uh, you mentioned how it was clear from the jump that the forensic evidence on the ground was not matching what was in that first official narrative report or conclusion. And I'm really curious to learn when you were in your recent conversations after the publication of the Vanity Fair article, after the reopening of the case, uh, how did law enforcement square these clearly conflicting 
conclusions, right? Because you have a solid case where you, you know, you've got corroborated stuff and you can say, well, that first report does not in any way match what actually happened. What, what was their response? Did they just stonewall into like the evidence doesn't support blah, blah, blah? Yeah, the, the fact that when the book first came out in uh, February 23rd, WJAR, a wonderful mm-hmm. reporter called R.J. Heim, H-E-I-M, for WJAR, the NBC affiliate in Providence, did a four-part series. And he contacted the police, and they refused to even comment on the findings in the book then, in February. Uh, when the case was reopened, uh, Jackie Wiest was very forthcoming with me, and I have, I think, 13 emails to her, and she has five or six emails back to me. And, and by the way, her emails after, I believe, Lieutenant Huck, in my, it's my opinion that Lieutenant Huck obstructed the investigation. He should have recused himself, because if he's telling her, if I'm not just in the media, but I'm a central fact witness in this reinvestigation because of what I uncovered. If he's telling you not to talk to me, that's obstruction. So he arguably should have recused himself from the chain of command, in my opinion, if they really cared about the truth. But ultimately, uh, we'll get to in a minute how they ended up concluding that there was no evidence, not conflicting evidence, no evidence. And all anyone has to do is read, go to peterlands.com. I even may, I'll make it easy. I have links to the key chapters in the book proving the murder and the cover-up. Mm-hmm. You can read them and then hopefully you'll buy the book or listen to the book, etc. But I, the thing I was going to bring up that I had forgotten that's really important is one of the things that Bob uh, brought to this narrative beyond his memory was the following. Remember I said when he confronted Doris Duke, she was not uh, uh, injured in any way. And he said, particularly said to me, Peter, mm-hmm. uh, as a Boy Scout, I, I, you know, I would have noticed if she was injured, I would have been more insistent on helping her. So this is like happens minutes after she's completely unwounded and uninjured. And then as Bob is pedaling away to do the rest of his route, he had two or three other stops. He hears, he hears the siren of Edward Angel, the first arriving officer on the scene. And when Edward Angel was, I interviewed him initially, and then I did further interviews for the Vanity Fair piece in August, then even more interviews because he, they finally brought him in to interview him, Jackie Weist, only after she'd gone to Bob's house. And Bob says, if you don't believe me, call, talk to Eddie Angel, you know, <laughs> like that. So she interviewed Eddie Angel. I got the audio of that and I transcribed that as well. But by that time, on the 17th of September, she was saying things to Eddie Angel like her mind was already closed, like pretty hard to prove intent when everybody's dead. That's a line from Jackie Weist on September's, like more than 10 weeks after she opened the case. Now, if she's an objective finder of fact, why would she say, hard to prove intent if everybody's dead. I'm not dead, at least not yet. Bob's not dead. Eddie Angel's not dead. There's all kinds of the other officers I interviewed are around. The forensic evidence is what it is, you know? It's all available. I would have sent uh, detailed, uh, copious uh, copies of my evidence to her if she really cared, but she was already in closure mode. But this is one of the most chilling and telling aspects. And this will give you an insight into who Doris Duke really was. So when Eddie Angel gets on the scene, he finds her in the car, apparently in shock, and with what Bill Watterson, another cop who saw at Newport Hospital, called steering wheel injuries, meaning she went, 
boom, she self, <laughs> my uh, headphones almost fell off. She self wounded herself. In other words, this is a, a, a time when there's no seat belts and there are no uh, restraints and no airbags, right? So she had to bump her nose and cut her lip intentionally. And then when Eddie Angel got there, he said, I was a rookie. I was, and he keeps apologizing for this. And I said, Eddie, anybody would have done the same thing. He said, I, I, I blurted out, there's a guy under there. There's somebody under there. At which point she jumped out and she starts walking back and forth on Bellevue Avenue, apparently in shock. A young naval nurse named Judith Tom, or now Wartko, who I tracked down, who had just been uh, commissioned an ensign in the, in the Newport, Na- in, at the Newport Naval Base, who was a nurse. She's with her mother and father. They're about to go on a sights, seeing trip around Ocean Drive. She gets up and Doris runs into the house. And so she starts following her. She chases Doris into the house to make sure she's okay. She Doris goes up to the second floor calling, Eduardo, 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 as if she's creating this story like, you know, that's going to fit with this whole thing of I was on him. I didn't know what happened. And then she comes out, you know, comes back out. And so, and Judas said uh, later, the, the McGallister, the, the corrupt doctor who happened to be my family doctor who allowed himself to be hired by Doris Duke that night, even though he was the assistant medical examiner charged with uh, determining the cause of death. And he hid her away in a room in Newport Hospital so state investigators could not get to her. Philip McAllister told uh, Alton Schlegel, a classic crime bulldog reporter for the New York Daily News, that she was bleeding profusely from her head, had serious injuries. This is what he tells Alton Schlegel. And Judith Thompson, no, she had a couple of little things on her lip and, you know, maybe a little bit of, you know, bruises up on her nose. And Bill Watterson said the same thing when he saw it at Newport Hospital. So they were already into this exaggeration now. But here's the final point I'd like to make as I, you know, you know me, I go on and on. By now people know that, that Eddie Angel, the fact that Eddie Angel found her in the car, apparently wounded, and Bob only moments earlier saw her out of the car, deliberately not in shock, in cold blood, keeping him, preventing him from looking under the car, screaming at him three times to get away. I ran all of this by Detective James Moss. And Detective James Moss is kind of a legendary detective from Brooklyn South Homicide, now retired. And he and I actually cleared, when we get into some of my terrorism stuff over the years, and my third book, Triple Cross, we we solved with the help of an FBI undercover agent, an Egyptian named Ahmed Salem. We solved the brutal, bloody murder of Mustafa Shalabi, who was an imam at, at a mosque in Brooklyn that was an open case for 19 years. And we solved it in the year 2010. I did a piece for Playboy about this and you know they used to have articles in playboy you guys have never you know whatever it's an old joke but (laughs) wait they have articles in Playboy. i'm just joking hey they published (laughs) shell silverstein one time but so i did a piece for playboy on this and 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 we saw this case so jimmy moss became a buddy of mine okay he's just a wonderful guy and he came up to newport with me in october of 2018 when i first began investigating this he was there for a week uh, and and I ran everything by him, my entire investigation. I gave him all the evidence to analyze, to make sure, oh, how is it that the police didn't talk to any of these witnesses? I mean, they uh, briefly, Eddie Angel interviewed the Toms, the father, uh, who was a Milwaukee cop, and his daughter, Judith, just very briefly. But the next day, when uh, Eduardo's a brother-in-law went and took the photographs inside the gates of the tire marks before they cleaned it all up, 
he was interviewed by Frank Walsh, and Walsh didn't didn't seem to care about any of that stuff. He just wanted to know the relationship with Doris Duke. So they're already into cover-up mode. But I said to Jimmy Moss, what does this mean to you about what's the significance of the difference between the way Bob Walker saw Doris Duke moments after the, the killing of Eduardo and the way Eddie Angel found her? And he said the behavior of this woman of power who dominated over this kid, six foot two woman of great power and influence who chased him from the crime scene was the behavior of a pure psychopath. He didn't say sociopath. Mm -hmm. He said a pure psychopath. And that's the last paragraph in that Vanity Fair story I did on August 5th. So, you know, this is, you know, all of this is informed by not just me shooting from the hip. It's like 60 pages of annotations. And I'm very proud. All of those books that, by the way, I don't even know how to point now on this thing. Those books to the left of, of the homicide cover. The first book I did on uh, counterterrorism for HarperCollins, over 600 pages called um, uh, A Thousand Years for Revenge. I did a shorter book called Cover Up that led to the indictment of a former FBI supervisor on four counts of uh, murder conspiracy in Brooklyn. The case ended abruptly during trial for un- complicated reasons. Uh, Triple Cross, my third book, was focused on Ali Muhammad, the Al-Qaeda spy, who was the FBI totally knew about for years and just he ate their lunch for years. And then my last book is called Deal with the Devil. It's an epic story of Gregory Scarpa Sr., a mad dog killer for the Colombo crime family, who was a top echelon criminal informant for the Bureau. It's the Whitey Bulger story on steroids, okay? So all four of those books wow. go in with massive detail. And when you're, when you're criticizing the FBI and the Justice Department, you better be right, okay? So all of those books have that massive levels, thousands of endnotes of annotation, as does this book. It has 60 pages, 915 endnote annotations. So you know, I I brought it, my body of work over the years, my skill, the skill set I developed doing epic stories like this, which are all retrospective, aren't they? That They're all, well, 9-11 is a cold case. I opened my, my book Triple Cross by saying that. They still haven't tried Khalid Sheikh Mohammed down in Gitmo, okay? Right? We know mm-hmm. that Khalid Sheikh Mohammed was, they call him the mastermind. He was Ramzi Youssef's uncle. Ramzi Youssef is the guy that I focus on in my first book, A Thousand Years for Revenge, in which I said for the first time of any mainstream journalist, the two attacks on the World Trade Center were absolutely intertwined. They were Al Qaeda operations funded by bin Laden, and everybody spurned it. Every, you know, the mainstream media, forget it, except Dan Rather, to his credit, did two pieces on the CBS Evening News from Iraq reporting on my first book, A Thousand Years for Revenge, in 2003. And then what do you think? Years later, the Newport, the New York Times, the paper of record, the gray lady, did a piece on uh, written by a guy named Ben Weiser, who covers the Southern District of New York, about how the SDNY had re uh, had uh, updated the superseding indictment on Ramzi Youssef to include his uncle Khalid Sheikh Mohammed in all the 9/11 murders. I was right, but did anybody <laughs> did anybody mention it? No, because <laughs> media institutions like the New York Times are as adverse to admit that they're wrong as. As law enforcement institutions, it's human nature. Nobody wants some guy like Peter Lance, who, you know, I was a former correspondent for ABC News, but I've been writing books, 
ever since. You know, uh, I'm a lone wolf now. I don't have a big, uh, you know, pulpit, a bully pulpit to preach from, as you might if you work for the Washington Post or the New York Times. Nobody wants to be told they were wrong, but all of my books are in the same vein, retrospective looking at cold cases. That's what they are, and that's what this is. That's what homicide at Rough Point is writ large. You know, this is well said, and this uh, this leads us to another part of our conversation. Before we go there, as a follow-up to the point you just made about the fallibility of humans and, you know, nobody wakes up super excited to admit that they got something wrong, I have to ask, because I'm sure a lot of audience members are thinking the same thing, have you at any point, Peter, found any evidence of remorse on Doris Duke's part between the time 1966 and her demise in the 90s? Like, even once was she like, "Ah, I feel bad that he's dead. No. In fact, as I mentioned in the last hour, I found an individual, a former RAF tail gunner during World War II, an Irishman who became a big game hunter, and he became her lover months later. And he was inseparable with her from uh, June of 67, the summer after when I started on the Daily News, all the way through October. And later, as he, he wanted to get away from her, he, he actually said, I was starting to be afraid of her. This is, this is an alpha male, if there ever was one, this individual. And he said to me one night in Pillow Talk, I just said, so what about this Torella thing? And she said, cold-bloodedly, he got what was coming to him, nobody two times me. And I explained a little bit about what that, the significance of what that may have meant on the last broadcast. She never expressed any remorse. The Newport Restoration Foundation, uh, they, they at least admit that the death of Eduardo was a, quote, tragic accident. They keep calling it a tragic accident. But no one in official Newport, the city manager, Joe Nicholson, uh, the city council who had the ability to order Nicholson to do an independent investigation and basically just kind of rolled over. The police department, Chief Gary Silva, Corey Huck, and then ultimately Jackie Weiss, this cold case detective who basically folded after a five-month investigation claiming there is no evidence. Now, we I think I put forth in almost two hours of your program compelling evidence, and people can read it in Homicide at Rough Point. You can go to PeterLance.com, look at the key chapters, read it for yourself. It's 60 pages of annotations. I even have a link to that. I have, uh, have pictures of the key graphic evidence in the book. And just people can judge for themselves whether or not there is not compelling evidence that Doris Duke killed Eduardo Torello with intent. And yet they just have slammed the door shut again. And not just equivocally, well, we couldn't really tell if there was, you know, conflicting evidence, et cetera. They said there's no evidence. That was Jackie Weiss' mm-hmm. pronunciamento, which the city kind of walked back a couple of different times, but they're still embracing the unfortunate accident theory, which was corruptly arrived at in 1966 and within 96 hours of, of Eduardo's death. And I talked about that in the last hour. The fabricated transcript that the police went so far as to create, three-page transcript of an interrogation that never took place, provably prima facie, as we say in the law, on its face provable as a fake to get the case closed. That's how far they went out of their way to protect Doris Duke. 
Well, and also like this, you talked about the civil case, I guess it was, uh, with Eduardo's family trying to essentially just recoup what his earnings would have been and how she continuously lowballed them and lowballed them and then ultimately was compelled to pay something just kind of absurd. $75,000, which was less, I'm sorry to interrupt, but it was less than the, the, the Chippendale high boy that she bought at Park Bernay for 129000 months before trial, the highest price for a piece of furniture ever paid. $75,000. And when his, when the lawyers took their cut for the, for the family, each brother and sister got $5,620. At a time she was making, when she was making $1 million a week in interest on her fortune. Well, it's an interesting point that you bring that up. I mean, it's almost like she looked at him as a piece of furniture. She did not look at him as a human being, and she did not regard his family as human beings, um, and probably looked at it as paying anything above that, you know, paltry amount would have been some sign of admission of guilt, right? Well, I think also that uh, what she did was, this is very interesting, and I did not realize this until I went back and, and, you know, started to put the book together and I had much more perspective on the timeline. Why did she drag out the case for five years? So they filed for $1.25 million, this wrongful death case. And what wrongful death is, means if a person dies and you're his heirs, and that person has an earning capacity for the rest of their life. If they're a blue-collar worker, it's relatively limited. But Eduardo's last year of earnings was like the equivalent of $348,000 in contemporary dollars. His Hollywood design career was exploding. He was catching fire. So arguably, he had another another 20 years to live. He had potentially millions of dollars of earning capacity, right? Well, first of all, they kept dragging it out, in my opinion, because she began restoring colonial houses in Newport, Rhode Island, which saved Newport from bankruptcy after President Nixon in 1973 essentially gutted the Newport Naval Base. They closed Quonset Naval Air Station across Narragansett Bay, and the entire cruiser destroyer force Atlantic Fleet, Crew Desland, was moved to three separate bases in the south. Now, how prepared would we have been if there was a blow-up with the Soviets over that? You know, Newport's a lot closer to Europe than, than, you know, Florida, right? But that was what happened with Nixon. So Doris comes in and what I call a murderous quid pro quo and rescues the town's economy. So five years later, by the time trial happened in Providence, the state capital, she's getting these edicts and decrees in the state Senate talking about her like she walks on water. Oh, Miss Duke, thank you so much for your philanthropy. Further, I can't prove this because I don't have the transcript because it was selectively removed from Rhode Island Judicial Archives. But did they play the gay card? Eduardo was a gay man in 1966. And one of the reasons the LGBTQ plus community has really gotten behind this book, I've had like five major pieces in The Advocate and Two and Out magazine, which is uh, which are published by Pride Media. Diane Anderson Minshaw, this incredible CEO, has really been supportive of this book and my work. If you were a gay man in 1966, you were half a man. And that's not me talking. That's just the reality of what it was like back then prior to the LGBTQ plus, you know, rights movement, right? So we don't know. But so the idea of it, as Donna Lohmeyer, his beloved niece said, and I quote this in the Vanity Fair piece and in the book, she killed him twice. She destroyed his body and then she eviscerated his memory. 
his reputation. And one of the things I'm proudest of in this whole endeavor is weeks after uh, the Vanity Fair piece came out, her Wikipedia entry, go to Doris Duke, Wikipedia, and it had not been changed for years. And I found out, and I didn't do it. I wouldn't even know how to do it, okay? You can't do it if it's like self-interested on Wikipedia. They They have an entire section on Eduardo Torello's death now in Doris Duke's uh, Wikipedia entry, and it's all sourced to my Vanity Fair story. So I'm very proud of that. Mm-hmm. If we can argue fairly, I think we'd agree that Wikipedia is kind of the encyclopedia Britannica of our time. People widely go to it. I mean, it may be flawed, but you know, people go to Wikipedia and look for things, and it's pretty well annotated. Uh, then I'm very proud that at least that part of history has changed. But the Newport, Rhode Island government, the city manager, Joe Nicholson, the police chief, Gary Silver, Lieutenant Corey Huck, and det- detective now promoted to Sergeant Jackie Wiest absolutely abandoned the truth in this case. Let's pause for a moment for a word from our sponsors. We'll be right back. Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long. For just $25. $25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all in one solution for hiring high quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part time or full time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy to use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snag a Job is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. Terminix can't help you solve the world's biggest mysteries or take on alien life. At least not the ones you're thinking of. But they can help take care of pesky invaders in your home. Like the ants in your kitchen, the roaches under your sink, and the termites in the walls. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. No matter what type of pest it is, they can Terminix it fast with personalized pest care that puts you in control. 
Their expertly trained technicians may not know true crime, but they know their local pest pressures. And with customized plans tailored to your specific situation, you get everything you need to not just get pests out, but keep them out for good. Between their speedy service, caring technicians, and over 95 years of experience, it's no mystery why they're trusted by homes and businesses everywhere. So if you have a pest problem, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com to book online today. And we've returned. This leads us to uh, something we talked a little bit about off air, but I'm sure a lot of our folks tuning in today are wondering, in this case specifically, or in some of the other cases that you have covered, have you ever felt that you were in physical danger? I mean, I know there's a lot of uh, litigious folks out there, but did you ever, you know, when you were getting uh, followed by uh, agents from the FBI or uh, maybe shadowy members of the criminal underworld, did you ever have one of those moments where you genuinely thought, holy shit, these folks might come for me? In order to wage a war, there are two central elements, right? You need operations, you need people blowing things up on the ground, and then you need intelligence, right? You need spies. No successful war from the time of Sun Tzu has ever been fought without both, right? Intelligence is crucial. So my first book recounts the story of Ramzi Youssef, this genius bomb maker who was the nephew of Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, who not only created the original 9-11, excuse me, the, the bombing of the Trade Center in 1993, but also, uh, you know, was the architect of the 9-11 attacks, which he designed in the Philippines that were about to be executed as early as 1995. But they had a fire in their bomb factory. He and Khalid Sheikh fled to Islamabad and he was arrested. Yusuf, they picked up his, his partner, Abdul Hakim Murad, who was going to be the original pilot trained in four U.S. flight schools. And he, he was rendered back to New York with Ramsey. And uh, so the plot was thwarted at that point, but it was clearly bankrolled by bin Laden. And as I said, I proved this in the book and it was later vindicated by the superseding indictment of Youssef and KSM uh, by the Southern District of New York, okay? When my third book came mm -hmm. out on, on the cover, we had Patrick Fitzgerald we focused on. And Patrick Fitzgerald at the time was probably one of the most powerful feds in the Justice Department. When he was in the Southern District of New York, he was the head of, ironically, both Organized Crime and Terrorism Unit. He was a very close friend of James Comey. When Comey was FBI director, uh, I mean, when Comey was U.S. attorney for the Southern District, he appointed, got Patrick Fitzgerald appointed U.S. attorney in Chicago, where he went on to indict Blagojevich, you know, the governor. And he also was the mm -hmm. uh, the special counsel in the CIA leak case, the Valerie Plame case, okay? Uh, and mm -hmm. uh, where Scooter Libby was convicted and then par later pardoned, you know, in that whole thing. Well, Patrick Fitzgerald, after this book came out, after it was published, that thick book there, Triple Cross, this thick, was published, is already out. Patrick Fitzgerald began writing a series of single-spaced threat letters to HarperCollins. He, over a 20-month period, he wrote four separate letters in which he said, not only do I want this book pulped, the existing copies of the book that are out there destroyed, I want uh, HarperCollins never to publish the trade paperback edition, which is traditionally a year later. 
And so HarperCollins initially rejected him. And then it's owned by Rupert Murdoch, by the way, but it's one of the media entities that Murdoch has never put his fingerprints on politically, HarperCollins. At the time, it was the largest English language publisher in the world. And I never got any intervention to slant things one way or the other. It was a, it was a great place to do four books for. So anyway, the initial lawyer for HarperCollins at the time, Mark Jackson, uh, sent a letter to Fitzgerald flatly refusing this, saying this is an important work of investigative journalism. And basically, sorry, Mr. Fitzgerald, you know. And then he got, when, when Rupert Murdoch bought Dow Jones, Mark Jackson went to be the general counsel for Dow Jones, which publishes the Wall Street Journal, okay? Well, now the uh, new uh, person that took over for him, who was less sure of herself, was chilled when Patrick Fitzgerald sent another letter, which he faxed from Office of U.S. Attorney Chicago. How is that not a chill? How does that not set a chill up the spine of a new general counsel for a major publisher who's just trying to get her sea legs in her work? So she decides to open an outside investigation and they hire a law firm in Chicago, Jenner and Block, a very expensive white shoe firm. And they proceed to have like a, I don't know, year and a half month investigation in which they made me prove every single fact in the book, reprove it after the book had already been vetted and found fit for publication. That slowed me down. What did it do? It took me out of play. It kept me from doing my job to get my next book. The first two books took two years from start to finish. The last book took two years from uh, well, the last book, actually, after this th- third one, took six years because I, two years out, I was taken out of play. Finally, I got, I basically, after uh, the several uh, heads at HarperCollins had left, I convinced the current head to, I was going to go public if they didn't publish the paperback. And I asked them to let me do 26 pages in the new paperback on this whole Fitzgerald escapade. Just before the book came out in the in the summer of uh, I guess 2011 or something like that, okay, uh, I wrote a, a Huff Post in which I challenged Patrick Fitzgerald. If you have an ounce of evidence that you've been libeled in any way, shape, or form, come at me, brother. Bring it. And he just scuttled into the dark. This guy, but l- think of who he was. So when I was in New York. Uh, the, the triple cross, the second book, Cover Up, prompted this indictment of this US, this former FBI supervisor, Lynn DeVecchio, on four counts of murder conspiracy by the Brooklyn DA. When I was in New York, they wanted, they, they subpoenaed me, both the defense and the prosecution subpoenaed me. They wanted my sources. And I'll go to jail before I'll give up a source. So basically, HarperCollins' attorneys at the time were woodshedding me in New York for two weeks. They had all my evidence in a, in a conference room that had guarded by security guards and everything, you know. And I was taking them through the whole choreography of all my work so they could prepare a motion to quash the indictment, which they did eventually, right? But while I was in New York during that period, I I was followed by two former members of the FBI New York office who called them, they had a group called the Friends of Lynn DeVecchio. The day Lynn DeVecchio got indicted in Brooklyn and he walks the perp walk outside as he's leaving court, he is surrounded by like maybe 25 agents, big guys, all in blue suits with red or white shirts, red or blue ties. And they're like pushing the press out of the way like they're soccer hooligans, Okay. Literally, this happened. And I was there and I was like, hey, hey, uh, you know, I was trying to get uh, DeVecchio to answer a question. That night, uh, an, an, an FBI agent, a former agent who was a big supporter of my earlier work, he actually shoved a matchbook in my pocket 
that day as he was passing me. He showed, and I looked at it and it said midnight special. And I was a diner. This guy lived on the Upper East Side. So I get to the diner and he said, listen, Peter, I'm telling you, I can't protect you on this one, brother. You know, I, you know, this guy risked, he actually went down to New Jersey and interviewed, uh, when I interviewed a, a former F, uh, member of the fire department who was a member of the mosque that were all these terrorists hung out and and like you know had literally got the plans of the world trade center prior to the bombing from the fire department so i had to give this guy an opportunity to respond so this guy this fbi agent i don't want to name him but he's legendary he wrote a best-selling book he said i'm not letting you get down there alone so he took me down i met him up in harlem he had a mercedes he had a bill o'reilly no spin zone hat (laughs) and we went down there and interviewed this this individual who is an Egyptian working in the in the FDNY who got the plans of the of the Trade Center bombing and he was on the arm we had a video of him on the arm of blind Sheikh Omar Abdel Rahman who is the pope of radical Islam okay convicted in a plot to blow up the bridges and tunnels into Manhattan who Patrick Fitzgerald prosecuted, okay? So I'm, I'm li- you know literally you know going to see this guy and this this FBI agent had my back Anyway, uh, but that when I was in New York during that whole period in there preparing me for this motion to quash and this murder trial, I'm being followed by these two guys who I nicknamed Pat and Mike. They were constantly on me all the time. It was more like, hey, we're in your we're, we're on your six, brother. You know, don't get too uppity. You know what I mean? But I didn't feel threatened per se. But that's how ham handed these guys are and, and what they can do when they want to suppress the truth. Wow. I've never heard a story like that, Peter. Ever. Dang. Of somebody actually being tailed by uh by agents like that. <laughs> Retired. Retired. Friends of. Friends of. There's an incident. I, I, like, uh, I can't wait to send it. I wrote a 10-hour dramatic scripted series all about this that I'm hoping to get made at some point. And I have a scene there where there's a young lawyer, there were these two lawyers uh, for HarperCollins, you know, and one was an old waspy kind of guy with Wellesley Lockjaw. And then another one was a young half Jewish, half Italian uh, kid. And he was in the beginning, he was like, come on, Lance, get to the chase, cut to the chase, stop talking, you talk forever. And I, I, one day I kind of pinned him against the wall in this conference room. I said, listen, while you were watching Barney drinking out of a purple cup, I was covering the war in El Salvador, dude. Okay. So give me a f-ing break for a minute. Okay. Just chill. Right. And then yeah. that guy came over. That guy became one of my biggest supporters. So one night I went, he said, I've never been down to ground zero. He had never gone, you know, like, you know, so one night I took him down and they were following me and they just came up behind the car and I just jumped in front of their car and I said, come on, just. You know, and then they, of course, they took off. Like, what was I going to do? They could have, they could have done a Doris Duke on me for all I knew. But the point is that you have to, you have to stand up to these guys. Yeah. And, and, and the problem with the FBI, and I'll be brief. I know we're, we're going way off a field here, but the problem of these federal agencies when it comes to journalism, they, 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 they know that they have the power, right? We're actually journalists have the power, but what they do is they convince even papers like the New York Times, which has a bureau, which has a somebody in residence at the Southern District. That's where this individual's office was that read my book the first time and said there's nothing new, only to write the article about the superseding indictment. And the FBI is punitive. They go, if you, if you don't write the kind of story we want, the next time we have an exclusive, you're not going to get it. And so they get intimidated. Uh-huh. You see 
what I mean? They, oh, you're not, oh, mm-hmm. I'm going to lose out. And, and, and they divide and conquer, which is how all bullies operate. They divide mm-hmm. and conquer. And whether, when journalists should stick together and go, no, we're not going to be intimidated by that. You know, and so th- that is 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 almost more insidious, insidious because it's kind of like self. You're being chilled, but you're chilling yourself from coming forward. Do you know what I mean? And yeah, that is uh, that's a that's an issue that I've observed over many decades. So these are legitimate. These these are like journalistic war stories, and they're invaluable because we have, this is part of the reason we wanted to make this a two-parter, folks. We have a lot of folks in the audience today who themselves are budding or hopefully uh, going to become budding investigative journalists or hoping to follow in a path like yours in the future. So they have a couple of questions that I think uh, Matt, Noel, and I can kind of predict here. And one of the first, this is a two-part question. One of the first is going to be, what are your Emmys for? That's going to be the fan question. And then the second question is going to be, what sort of advice do you have for anyone listening now who, like you, wants to have a career speaking truth to power? All right. Well, uh, the first of the three, these are three national Emmys. I actually was this, the station award for WABC Local. Um, so what happened with me is I went to Columbia Graduate School of Journalism, which is this remarkable, you know, one-year master's program. It was back then. A hundred of the greatest uh, uh, brightest uh, young people in the world, half of whom were from foreign countries, and you go there for a year, and uh, it's just an, it's just a chance to get to New York City, really. And so, basically, uh, I then went to WNET, uh, the public TV flagship in New York, as a producer, and I won a couple of local Emmys there. And then I went to WABC local, which many people call Eyewitness News. <laughs> it was pretty light, you know, in those days. But they allowed me to do some some pretty uh, compelling investigative reporting. And Fordham, so we had this thing called the Help Center, which is kind of a consumer ombudsman enterprise. And we had Fordham University Law students. Uh, Fordham Law was right across from Lincoln Center from ABC. And so, oh, there was a great professor named Sheila Birnbaum. And she said to me, you know, Peter, you're going to be doing this kind of work your whole career. You should get a law degree. And I go, well, thank you. That's good. Thank you for that advice. She says, no, I'm telling you, you're going to come up. You're going to get sued for libel. It's just the nature of the beast. And truth is an absolute defense. But you need to prepare yourself. I said, well, okay. She says, I took the LSAT and I just barely got into Fordham Law School. And then the first year I went to night school and I almost flunked out. I got like a 72 average because I was working all day long and I was exhausted. So I quit and I went to NYU that summer and then I finished in three. I finished at Fordham in three years. I got my JD. Went back to ABC where I worked on uh, 2020 and I did an investigation of an arson ring in Chicago uh, as a producer. And that was the second Emmy that I did. And then I became a correspondent. I, I got an offer from Dan Rather to go to work on 60 Minutes as a producer. And I basically used that to say to my boss on 2020, Av Weston, hey, man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ankle this joint if you don't give me a shot. And if I'm terrible on camera, we'll drop Tom Jarrell into it or somebody, you know, like that. We'll drop a legit voice, you know, into the thing. And so he said, all right. So I did this piece on unnecessary surgery in a southern hospital. And we got sued for $52 million, won an Emmy, won an Emmy. It shut the hospital down. I was totally right, because why? Truth is an absolute defense. And I'll get to that in a minute in my advice to the, to the young'uns out there. 
And so we have this trial in the Ozark Mountains in federal court. We had to change the venue from the town, Boone County, because they would have lynched us first rather than tried us. You know, it was like one of those situations. So we're in Fayetteville, where the university is, where they at least read you their your rights before they lynch you. So uh, anyway, so the trial goes on. There was a Reagan-appointed judge. We would have won an appeal because every little ruling was against us. But basically, we, you know, we won the case, right? And the jury was out for like, half an hour. So we're back in the hotel in the hotel in town celebrating, having a little champagne. And the, our, our lead counsel was Buddy Sutton, who's the dean of the law school in Little Rock. The man glided. It was like Tommy Lee Jones in a white suit. He was class act. He was he was the primary counsel. So we're in the hotel and the phone rings and it was Rune Arledge, the re- legendary uh, president of ABC News and Sports, the man who came up with the line, the thrill of victory, the agony of defeat, okay? He took over ABC News. He, he used to wear safari jackets and, and smoke Churchill cigars, and he had a chauffeur-driven jag. He was larger than life, but he created ABC News as we as it later became a great news entity. He got Barbara Walters. He got, uh, Sam, uh, you, know, you know, David Brinkley to come over. Uh, you know, Peter Jennings. First, they had the troika of three reporters, then P- the great Peter. Peter Jennings, God rest his soul, World News Tonight. So Rune Arledge is on the phone. And whenever Rune Arledge called, he had a red phone in every control room. And it was never good news. He would always give notes, you know, like... And so he, I get on the phone and Rune says, Peter, you know, you've got some promise. My wife, my, my wife thinks you, you got promise. I go, oh, really? Thank you. You'd just gotten married to a beautiful young woman. And I said, well, but he said, hey, uh, man, you gotta, you gotta learn this job because you're really terrible on camera. So we're going to put you on Nightline and you're going to learn this job. And I said, oh, man, well, thank you, Rune, because he let everybody call him Rune. And then he said to me, and this is how he ended the call, if you had lost this case, your next job in, in broadcasting would have been on the window at Burger King. And he hung up. Okay. And I was like, okay. But then I went to Nightline. I made my bones. And then I went to World News Tonight. Had my own investigative unit. Bill Lord, the head of Nightline, came to the big show, the Jennings show. And I, you know, I, I did some compelling investigative reporting for X number of years there. Met my now ex-wife, Donna, who was this brilliant computer graphic designer. And uh, we had our first child and we had some issues medically. So we, I came to Hollywood to, in order to like make the same kind of money, uh, the, our combined salaries uh, gave us before without selling heroin. You know what I mean? I, I wanted to do some kind of work and I always loved Hollywood. So I, I got to Michael Mann, the great Michael Mann. He was, he already had Miami Vice as a hit. And then he was doing this new show called Crime Story. I covered the Teamsters. I knew that. And so I got, I snuck onto the Universal lot one day, came out to LA and I got, he gave me, he said, you have five minutes to blow me back against the wall. And he, he laid back and with his Patek Philippe and I just threw every proper noun in my life at the guy at the end. He goes, okay, okay, I'll give you a story option teleplay. I said, what's that? He said, well, we'll pay you for the whole thing, but if we don't like your story, well, that's it. Your career is over. I said, I'll take it. So he fortunately hired me on staff and I had a 15-year career. Uh, but um, getting to young people that want to do this, okay? Uh, before, maybe 10 years ago, I would have advised people start in print journalism because it's a great discipline. There is no... Uh, 
print journalism is 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 has been gutted essentially at the local level because local journalism, it, you know, uh, they say politics are all local. Uh, journalism is local. Okay, the skill that you need to 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 write under pressure, cover an event under daily deadline pressure, whether you're covering an accident or a trial or anything, is is a skill. And you have your reporter's notebook, and you learn how to do it under pressure, and and you know you write the story and you file it, and the next day it starts all over again. Okay, so that is a fantastic discipline, local print journalism, but it's not always available now because of like the Newport Daily News is owned by Gannett and, you know, and it's like got half the staff that it used to have. And it's not anywhere near as strong in terms of standing up to official authority as the Daily News when I worked there. So what I would say uh, to do, if you're interested in doing this, set up a set up a website have a website. I, if you go to peterlance.com, I use a, I use a WordPress site that, it, that kind of is the same kind of uh, journalistic front page as the Arizona Republic and a bunch of newspapers use. It's because I see myself still in that vein as a print reporter. But I have a website. And uh, after Trump got elected, uh, or actually right after he got elected, I set up another website called investigatingtrump.com that was a, a pass-through site where I just curated all the best reporting. Uh, and, and, you know, and, and essentially I had to quit when I started doing this investigation of Duke because it was like owning an, uh, an inn. You could never leave. You know, every day there'd be more reporting. So I pretty much stopped it. But that was what I did there because there, neither of these sites were commercial, no ads, is that I just would take the piece from the New York Times and then I would, in the first paragraph, I'd connect it back to the original piece. I'd always, you know, tweet about the piece and the reporters would were grateful that they would get the extra coverage. Well, anyway, what I would say to people right now, get a website, start reporting, whatever your interest is, true crime, politics, whatever it is. But this is the most important thing you can do. Because the President Trump you know, caused so much doubt in the public mind, called us the enemy of the people because there is this notion of fake news, because there's this terrible uh, fracture in everybody's sense of reality about what is real and what isn't. You have to be scrupulous in your annotations, okay? And when you do a story, if you go back and you look at peterlance.com, and I have a lot of my Huffington Post stories there, you'll see links in all those stories to other entities because we stand on the shoulders of giants. And you have to, you want to give credit where credit is due, right? You want to like say, okay, well, I got this lead from so-and-so in the New York Times, the Washington Post, but then I've advanced that lead. If you do that, if you have a well-designed website and you're brief, uh, unlike me, because I'm old, you know, and I talk forever, but if you're the kind of young person that that admires brevity, I'm not talking about TikTok brevity, but I'm talking about, you know, like a a typical story in the Daily Beast, you do that and you you can make a name for yourself. And what if you're, even if it's in the local town, you can win a Pulitzer Prize now for a website, okay? You know what I mean? For local reporting. Mm-hmm. You could do it. You could hit, hit, you know, and then you can go on to an amazing career where people will actually pay you a salary if you want. But there's nothing as thrilling. I always said this to my kids, you know. There's, the worst tension in the world is having a rock pushed down on you as you're climbing up a cliff. 
It's harder to push the rock up the cliff, but there's a lot of freedom in that, you know? So at a certain point in my career, I stopped doing hard news. I didn't want to take an assignment from the desk because I just go off and do that. The, 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 the benefit is it's six o'clock, you file the story and it's Miller time. You go to the bar or whatever, but investigative reporting, you have to come up with the story and they take longer to do, but they're so much more rewarding and potentially have life-changing, um, you know, uh, results. I'll tell you, uh, I know we got to leave, but I'll tell you this one thing. Recently, I put together a PowerPoint presentation for when I went to Newport for uh, on the 10th of uh, December to, for my last big book signing. And because the Newport cops just folded the case so summarily, I wanted to add a little bit in the, in the PowerPoint. Key, I use key point because I'm an Apple guy. And I wanted to add a little bit of background on, on you know, where I'd done, where I came from, my background. And I found a story that I had done for World News Tonight on near midair collisions. And this was in 1984. And President Reagan had fired all the PATCO 9,000 air traffic controllers who tried to unionize. And we were getting reports anecdotally and a bunch of other news that there were near midair collisions left and right. And the definition of a near midair collision, when two planes come within 500 feet, okay? And they were, and, and so the Reagan administration was had a guy, Admiral Engen, the head of the FAA, come on David Brinkley and say, the number of near midair collisions has been cut in half since we took over. And they came up with this 280 whatever statistic, okay? So we, ABC, let me spend three weeks on this story. And eternity. And I had a young assistant named Randy Pryor, and we basically got FOIA'd all of the near midair collision reports from all the, F the regional centers of the FAA, and we proved that the number was actually doubled. And during the broadcast, I'm in the control room because that's what we would do, you know, when you had a piece on. My, my now ex-wife Donna's down there doing the, you know, computer graphics and they get a phone call and literally the F, how, when have you seen this happen in government lately? They actually admitted that they were wrong during the broadcast and they readjusted the graphic at the end and Jennings announced it at the end. That was not the most important thing that happened. What the most important thing that happened is I reported on a thing called, uh, TCAS. Uh, like an, a, a collision avoidance system that was a pilot program and a couple of planes that were at the time. And as a result of this piece that I did, the, uh, the, the Senate Oversight Committee pushed to get TCAS installed in all the airlines. And about 25 years went by, you know? And I'm like driving along one day and I hear on CBS News that the number of near midair collisions has dropped to like zero because of TCAS. <laughs> You know, it's an example of what happens when journalism is on an issue precisely and they capture the imagination of the public. The public puts pressure on people in power and change happens. I, I don't think we can leave on a stronger point than that. I, I want to make sure people I mean, we've said it many times on this episode already. PeterLance.com. The book is Homicide at Rough Point. You can find that on Amazon. I'm sure that's the best fastest way for anybody to get that there's a link on my website to it but it's in hardcover trade paper kindle ebook and uh audible yeah and uh mr peter lance did his own voice for his writing so check that out if you've enjoyed listening to him on this episode i know you've got other stuff coming up and you know i would just say if you're interested please go to peterlance.com you will see because there's upcoming stuff that I don't want to spoil really here, but there's really interesting upcoming things from Peter. Man, just we can't thank you enough for your time. 
Uh, it's been a pleasure. You guys, it just went by like that to me. I don't know what it's going to sound like to your listeners, but I, uh, I'd love to do some other stuff with you on all this, you know, the road to 9-11 stuff, because it remains uh, still uh, like people really don't understand. You know, there are all kinds of conspiracy theories around the 9-11 attacks, seven world trade. There's a lot of interesting stuff uh, that, you know, you can prove that happened. And but I would love to explore that with you. And also, I sent a Matt a copy of my one of my two novels is called uh, Stranger Four Five Six. It has to do with serial killing, and I developed an expertise in that area. I did a film, uh, executive produced a film called The River Man for A uh, and E several years ago. That was all about how Ted Bundy. This is a true story. Helped to find the Green River Killer on his death on death row. Uh, these two cops, Bob wow. Keppel from the state of Washington, went down there and basically solved the the Bundy murders uh, in Washington uh, on the on the eve of his execution. And so we did a movie about that. So uh, I, that got me into the whole serial killer world. And I'm very critical of the vaunted FBI and the behavioral analysis unit at Quantico, the Silence of the Lambs suite, uh, because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, they, they've lost a lot of they've missed a lot of uh, cases because of profiling, which is bedrock. Everybody thinks, oh, profiling, that's the basic. Well, guess what? They don't want to get caught. They're human beings and they change their MOs and their profiles from time to time. And if you have that, if you're excluding evidence, then that's what happened. Don't give it all away, Peter. These are all conversations we need to have. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, uh, so yes, uh, as, as you said, Matt, uh, thank you so much. Uh, Peter Lance, the website is Peter Lance com. We've talked in depth about the Doris Duke case, but make no mistake, folks, there's much, much more to the story. This is an ongoing story at this point. Uh, Peter, you have a second book that you are working on. I don't know how you find the time in the day, but we have enormous respect uh, for what you were doing. And thank you as well for the uh, clarion call, the words of inspiration for the journalist in the audience with us today. We can't wait to hear more, and we know that you will agree. So thank you once again. It's been a pleasure, guys. Thank you so much. Well, uh, it's Christmas Eve. <laughs> this oh, is, my gosh, it is. This is our Christmas Eve episode. Matt, I got so wrapped up in, in our conversation. <laughs> yeah. Hey, uh, all you future reporters out there and current ones and everybody else listening. Hey, guess what? Uh, Merry Christmas. Yeah, I said it. Also, happy <laughs> holidays. That, too. But yes, you know. <laughs> yeah. And happy Friday. If you're not in the holiday thing, uh, we we wanted to thank everybody for the gift that you gave us over here on the show. And uh, you might be thinking, I didn't get you guys anything. You did. You gave us your time and it means the world to us. We really can't overemphasize that. Uh, we want to hear from you. Uh, We want to hear, uh, for any budding journalist out there, we want to hear some of the stories you're working on. We want to hear the ways in which you are speaking truth to power. We try to be easy to find online. Just hit us up on Facebook, hit us up on Twitter, Instagram. You can find us pretty easily. And if you say, hey, I listened to all your episodes about the scary rise of the surveillance state via social media. I don't sip those social meds. Then you can call us directly. You can talk to us. Yeah, that's right. Nobody's monitoring those phone calls. (laughs) 
not just kidding. <laughs> yes, they do. But it's okay. They won't monitor this one when you call us. Our number is one eight three three stdwytk When you call in, give yourself a really cool nickname. Let us know if we can use your message on the air and your voice. And uh, just say whatever you want. You've got three minutes. They're yours. Just go wild with it. We can't wait to hear from you. And if you do not like to use your phone in that way, maybe you like to use your phone as a, an email device. You know, that thing with electronic communications. You can also send us links that way. You can send us stories, any thoughts. Maybe it won't fit into that three-minute voicemail. Send us everything you've got. We cannot wait to read it because we read everything we receive. Our email address is conspiracy at iheartradio.com. Stuff They Don't Want You to Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Dealing with pests can be a pain, but relax, Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. If your home or business has pests, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts.